Well, kia ora and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. Today I want to talk about what's happening with house prices and what's happening with interest rates. I have this saying, two, two main sayings. Firstly, we don't have an economy, we have a housing market with bits tacked on. And that, at least financially, and actually increasingly socially, the only two things that really matter for New Zealand are what's happening with house prices and what's happening with interest rates. Because if you're an owner, rising house prices delivers leveraged, usually leveraged, tax-free capital gains, which you can use to run your small business off or guarantee your future financial security and that of your family. But if you're a renter or a first home buyer, that destroys your future. And when house prices rise, they often hap happen at the same time as falling interest rates. So for all those who understand how to make yourself rich in New Zealand, the key is to leverage up the equity in your existing home and to buy as many homes as you can. And when interest rates fall, that effectively increases the price of assets because it's cheaper to borrow money to buy those assets. And there's a very close correlation between falling interest rates and rising asset values, as we've seen over the last 20 to 30 years, as there's been a structural fall in interest rates, in inflation, and asset prices. So what's happening here in New Zealand at the moment? The broad perception is that inflation is taking off and that the Reserve Bank will have to increase interest rates to try and slow down that inflation. And certainly in the rest of the world, that was also the same view around the beginning of the year. There were warnings about a 1970s-style inflation breakout that would force the US Federal Reserve, the world's biggest central bank, to put up interest rates. However, back then, the US Central Bank said, hang on a minute, we think this inflation is temporary, it is likely to be transitory, and so we're not going to overreact and pull the trigger too fast. We're going to wait and see. And everyone thought about that for a bit and realized that the US Federal Reserve has the power to print money, and in fact is printing 120 billion US dollars a month at the moment, and it's best not to take on the Fed. Don't fight the Fed, is the phrase in financial markets. And in many ways, investors are now betting on the Fed continuing to provide that support. And that support is in the form of money printing to buy government bonds. So the Reserve, US Federal Reserve will create money out of nowhere, use that money to buy government bonds, often US government bonds and US mortgage bonds. And that cash that it's created goes to the owner of that bond, which is often a bank or a pension fund. And then they can choose to, in theory, invest that money in other slightly riskier assets. Increasingly, they have just reinvested that money in either other government bonds or uh, simple bank accounts with cash. Because often those investors who own those assets are already rich, often they're quite old, and so their appetites to invest that cash in riskier assets and building businesses is very low, and so they tend to want to put their money in what they see as a safe place. So they pile up the cash in a corner, Scrooge McDuck style. And often that means buying property, it means buying uh, hard assets that they think will retain their value. 
And so we've seen this massive increase in asset prices, depending on how you look at it, over the last 18 months of about 40 to 60% in global share markets. And in New Zealand, of course, um, we've seen since the beginning of COVID a rise of about 35, 40% in our house prices. And that's because our central bank was also doing that money printing and bond buying for quite some time. It stopped in July, but in that time it bought over $60 billion worth of central government bonds and local government bonds. And it did it also by creating that money out of nowhere and buying those bonds, albeit from the secondary market, the um, pension funds and the banks, who in turn had bought those bonds directly from the government. So those bonds didn't stay out in the market for long before being recirculated into the hands of the Reserve Bank. Now you may ask, why hasn't that created inflation here? There has been some inflation created, but it's mostly been, as we've seen in the rest of the world, asset prices. So everyone's thinking, don't worry, that won't last for long because someone will have to put up interest rates soon because all of this money printing just creates inflation. It does create inflation at asset prices, but remember our central banks, and they're almost all independent, and we certainly have an independent central bank, now have inflation-targeting mandates. In fact, New Zealand was the inventor of the independent inflation-targeting central bank. And ours is very much independent and targeting inflation. And so uh, the key thing is what happens to consumer price inflation, not asset price inflation, consumer price inflation. And we are now seeing over the last um, few months, but increasingly we've seen this in the last day, signs that inflation is coming off the boil in the rest of the world. So last night we got out of the United States figures showing that core consumer price inflation in America rose just 0.1% in August. Now, economists had expected a rise of 0.3%, so it's much weaker than economists had forecast. That meant that people who bet on interest rates in the future drove down the value, or drove down the yield, expected interest rates, of the most traded asset in the world. That's the US 10-year Treasury bond yield. If you're a regular listener to the Kaka podcasts, you'll know I am obsessed by particularly the US 10-year Treasury bond yield. Why? Because I spent a bit of, bit of time in my youth um, covering bond markets. I understand how global financial markets work. And anyone who wants to know what's happening in the world of um, finance and asset prices um, globally knows that the most important thing to watch is the US 10-year government bond yield because it is the gold standard in safe assets that investors want to put their money into when they're worried about the future or in many cases they're forced to put their money in there. If they're a pension fund, often they will have mandates to put their money into the safest possible investments. So we all watch that closely. And last night, the 10-year government bond yield fell more than six basis points to uh, just on 1.26%. Uh, so think about that for a while. People in the world, often in the US, sometimes central banks elsewhere, certainly rich people in the world, are happy to give the US government their money and not expect it back for 10 years and get 1.26% uh, 
on average over those 10 years. So A, they believe they'll get the money back. And B, we've just had inflation figures, at least nominal inflation, of over 5%. So you're putting your money into a government bond and getting back 1.26%. The inflation right now is 5.4%. So you're expecting to lose money in real terms over that 10 years. Now, either that means you don't really believe that inflation will stay up at 5% as it is as it was in nominal terms in the US for that 10 years, which is most likely the case. And B, you're also happy to accept a very low real yield, i.e. a return from the government for putting your money somewhere. Now that says a bunch of things. A, people think that returns on investment from Global assets are going to be very low for quite some time. Maybe they think there's something broken in the global economy, which means that profits are not going to be very high. Or B, they are essentially very risk averse and are quite happy to just park their money in a pile and know that it's going to be there uh, when they come back in 10 years' time. Assuming, of course, Trump or someone even worse doesn't get elected again. And America doesn't um, unleash some sort of wealth-destroying event on the world, or vice versa. Someone else uh, um, launches it on them. That aside, that's where we are at the moment. Investors are so worried about the future, so risk-averse, they already have so much money that they're not investing it in other things, even though central banks are trying to make them invest it in other things by printing that money and that cash and giving it to them. Unfortunately, that group of people are just turning right round and giving the cash straight back to the central bank in the form of a settlement account that their bank has with the central bank or putting it in other government bonds. To give you a sense of where they want to put it, yesterday, the New Zealand government issued $3 billion worth of 30-year government. The New Zealand government went out to the world of investors, many of whom are in New Zealand now because there is a lot of money in KiwiSaver funds, in the NZ Super Fund and ACC and all the rest, not to mention the rest of the world's central banks and uh, pension funds who are looking for government bonds all over the place. We, of course, have a AAA credit rating and we seem a rather sensible choice at the moment with a relatively competent government and the lowest COVID death rate in the world. So, 30-year bonds issued onto the markets yesterday. There was $3 billion up for sale. There were bids of $12 billion, so it was four times subscribed. That is a very high and strong demand in a government bond auction. And the price they paid was just on 2.2% for 30 years. So, essentially, those investors are happy to park their money with the New Zealand government for 30 years and get back, on average, 2.2% per year. Now, our Reserve Bank is mandated to keep inflation around about 2%. And most people pretty much believe that's that the Reserve Bank has the power and can do it and has done it for uh, 30 years or so and is likely to keep doing it on the whole. So what that says is if you assume that the Reserve Bank successfully keeps inflation, consumer price inflation, around 2% for the next 30 years, you're happy to accept a real return of 0.2%. Remember, you're paying, you're getting 2.2% per year in nominal terms, and you're expecting inflation of 2%, so your real return is 0.2% 
for the privilege of giving someone else your money for 30 years. You're not going to get it back for 30 years, unless, of course, you trade it on the markets. That's where we are in New Zealand right now. Investors are putting their money into the government for 30 years for a real return of 0.2%. Now, you could say maybe they don't actually expect inflation of 2%. Maybe they only expect 1.5% or 1%, and therefore their real yield is actually a little bit higher than 0.2%. That's partly true. You can actually measure what market expectations are for inflation by looking at the difference between the nominal bond yield for 10 years and the inflation indexed bond yield for 10 years. And you get what you call a break-even price, which essentially is what a measure of what the markets expect inflation to be. And currently that's around about 1.6%. So where does this leave us? Financial markets, this is opposed to um, economists and traders, so financial investors, actual people who invest their money, not necessarily the traders or the bank economists, they believe inflation stays low. And in fact, if anything, they're, they're expecting inflation to fall further. In financial markets in New Zealand, financial uh, traders in the uh, um, overnight index swap markets, uh, these are the uh, ways in which you measure uh, financial market expectations of what's going to happen to official cash rates in the short term. Remember, the official cash rate is the very short term rate that the Reserve Bank sets and has the power to set. Every six weeks it makes the decision about that, and it's the base of all interest rates in New Zealand and is obviously uh, the tool that the Reserve Bank uses to push the economy around. When it gets down to zero, uh, then the Reserve Bank has had to print money like other central banks around the world. So currently it's at 0.25% and was cut to that early on in the COVID um, outbreak in March last year. And it hasn't moved since then, and obviously the Reserve Bank has printed $60 billion. It has stopped printing now. And the expectation is that in October, interest rate decision, the Reserve Bank will put that rate up to 0.5%. And then at the end of November, it comes out with its last big set piece monetary policy statement of the year, it will put it up from 05 to 0.75%. That's what people in the financial markets have been saying for a few weeks now. And they assume that because there seems to be a lot of inflation around, people are talking about it, labour shortages, all these sorts of things, they that the Reserve Bank will have to put up interest rates. And to be fair, about a month ago, the day before we found out about the Devonport case and we all went into level four lockdown, the Reserve Bank was ready to pull the trigger and probably would have. But obviously it chose on that Wednesday, the day of the first day of lockdown, not to pull the trigger. And... That meant that everyone assumed we'd have a short lockdown and then the Reserve Bank would get back on the horse and start putting up interest rates. In fact, some even think that they would like to put it up by 50 basis points in one go the next time. However, uh, with this concern about what's happening with inflation globally, with the slowdown in global growth because of the Delta outbreaks, with the slowdown in global inflation, with concerns about Delta outbreaks in China, for example, in the last couple of days, there's been another outbreak in the Fujian province. Case numbers doubled yesterday. And with our own uh, lockdown going on for uh, a month 
and uh, another week at least in Auckland, uh, potentially longer than that, depending on what we see the next few days, although there is good news there in that for two days running, we've had no mystery cases on Tuesday and Monday, which is great news, and you'd have to hope a full week of no mystery cases, and you'd think Auckland would move back from level three, sorry, from level four to level three. And maybe the rest of the country moves down again. But obviously this has been quite a damaging lockdown, even compared to last time. The government hasn't been quite so generous with its wage subsidies and other payments to businesses. It's a year and a half on and many businesses have really struggled in that time and this is the final blow. And also, got to remember what's happening in the rest of the world and the prospects for New Zealand opening up are at best next year, most people think. I actually think it's more likely to be the year after that. But whatever the case, we're certainly not racing along with a really buoyant economy in the same way we were a couple of months. What does this all mean? You'd think with all this talk of downturns and slow growth and some sort of fall in GDP in the September quarter that the housing market would be in not a very good state. No, the Real Estate Institute has just come out with its numbers for August. This obviously is the most robust set of figures on what's actually happening to uh, transacted house prices. And the best way to look at it is to go to the Real Estate Institute's house price index, which gets rid of all the skewing effects of lots of expensive houses or cheap houses selling in any particular month. And it really is the best measure of what's happening to house price inflation. Remember back in March when the Reserve Bank and the government came out together And uh, in particular, the government said it was going to bring in this new policy for investors so they couldn't claim interest for tax deductibility purposes. And the government said it was going to invest more in building new houses. And the Reserve Bank said it was going to tighten the LVR restrictions, which they've um, said they're going to do and give more detail in the last couple of weeks and are probably going to tighten debt-to-income multiple controls. You'd think that it'd have some sort of effect on the housing market, and you'd see a slowing of inflation from that 20-25% level we were at the end of last year, early this year. And everyone thought, yep, that's it, we'll cool down now, and there won't be much inflation. What has happened in the last six months or so since that March 23 shock, as it's called? House prices have risen at least another five to 10%. So they haven't slowed down much at all. In fact, house price inflation in August from a year ago, according to the REINZ's house price index, was 31.1% nationally. 31.1%. And when you look at the last three months, you can see that house price inflation was running at a rate of more than 4%. In fact, the number for the uh, last three months nationally was 5.4%. So if you annualise that, so four times 5.4%, currently house price inflation is over 20% at an annualised rate. And in the last month, house price inflation was 2%. That's one month. So again, if you annualise that, you're looking at well over 20% inflation is the current rate. That is a lot more than everyone expected. And I think is because home buyers in particular have the biggest case of FOMO that we've ever seen. 
understandably, given last year everyone seemed to think house prices would fall, but what we actually saw was the Reserve Bank and the government intervene in the housing market to stop it from falling, for their own often quite good reasons. Politically, of course, it's not a good look for any government to allow house prices to fall or to do anything that might actually make them fall. And secondly, the Reserve Bank was forced, because remember it had cut interest rates to naught and really couldn't cut them much further. That's another story. They could have cut them into negative uh, territory, but the banks didn't have the systems to handle it. But that aside, the Reserve Bank had no choice really once it had cut interest rates to naught uh, other than to print money and buy government bonds to force down long-term interest rates. That's what quantitative easing does, supposed to do. And it did. And that helped push up the value of asset prices. Now in New Zealand, the main asset price that everyone focuses on, as we've, as I've said before, it's a housing market with bits tacked on, it's not an economy, and that the only thing that matters are house prices and interest rates. We saw, we've seen the reaction. So uh, even though we've had no net migration in the last year, we've had the highest house building rate in more than 30 years. We've just had the worst economic shock in our lifetimes, and we're having another one now, yet house prices are up 30%. Now, that says a couple of things. A, there's a lot of people are have a lot of equity in their houses, and they're willing to leverage it up to try and buy more houses and get more tax-free capital gains. And they believe, actually, that interest rates stay low for longer. And what I've just said is, is that's true. It's also true that the Reserve Bank, which, remember, now has to use the housing market as its main tool for moving the economy around, using the wealth effect to push the appetites of spenders to spend and invest, uh, it, there is effectively now a government guarantee under house prices. And people have learned that over the last year. They suspected it in 2008 when, again, the Reserve Bank intervened to cut interest rates. But last year, the Reserve Bank not only cut interest rates, it also printed $60 billion and removed restrictions on LVRs, briefly, until they realised they'd made a big mistake and reimposed it. So what happens now? The government will say, and has said recently, that this is... Uh, house price inflation they don't want, and they'd like a much more moderate level of house price inflation, which uh, at the end of last year the Reserve Bank, uh, the, the Prime Minister pointed out was around about 4%. That's where she wanted a moderate level of house price inflation to be. But remember, 4% means that there is no improvement in housing affordability ever, because that's 4 to 5% is how much. Uh, incomes are growing. So you're not going to see an improvement in house price to income multiples or an improvement in rental affordability multiples over that time. So the government is effectively saying we want to stop housing affordability getting worse but we don't want it to get better because that would imply we want house prices to fall. And repeatedly the government has said it doesn't want house prices to fall. One of the most interesting questions in the election campaign was from Patrick Gower to uh, Jacinda Ardern and Judith Collins and asked them would they like house prices to fall and Jacinda Ardern said no and Judith Collins said well, in some cases yes but overall no. And that's where we are. The politicians have effectively guaranteed the housing market. Home buyers understand that. They also understand that the Reserve Bank has the power and is guaranteeing the housing market 
and they understand probably better than a lot of people in the financial markets that house prices keep rising. In fact, home owners have an expectation that house prices keep rising at a rate of more than 6% per year for the next at least two years. And remember, a 6% rise in house prices every year means that house prices double every decade. And you often hear that this from many homeowners, that they expect house prices to double every decade. If you believe that, that house prices are going to double every decade and you're happy to hold on beyond the 10-year bright line test, that is an extraordinary amount of tax-free leveraged capital gain to make and just completely blows away uh, any alternative investment choices, be they in other businesses, in other assets, particularly global shares or anything like that. We have a situation where homeowners believe they are investing in a market that is too big to be allowed to fail by the Reserve Bank and the government. They believe that interest rates stay low for much, much longer. And they're right about that because we have a long-term structural downtrend towards very low interest rates and inflation that's been running now for more than 30 years. And there are genuine structural reasons for that, in particular, the uh, reduction in the power of workers to demand higher wages because of the growth of the work platforms and the con contractization of uh, the global workforce. The likes of Uber and Uber Eats and Airbnb and Netflix have not gone away. If anything, they're getting stronger through this COVID period. And just today, we've seen Apple announce its 13th version of the iPhone with a longer battery life and a new type of camera that gives you a cinematic experience. One of the reasons I think we've had this structural downtrend in inflation and interest rates over the last decade is that the launch of the iPhone in 2007, along with the GFC, allowed and cr created significant deflationary pressures all around the world. We saw that with um, the rise of the app economy and reductions in prices. That meant anyone owning assets more than a decade ago has um, made the, had the biggest free kick in the form of falling inflation and falling interest rates. So remember, we've just had inflation of 31.1% in the year to August. What about in your particular area? If you're in Palmerston North, crack open the champagne because house prices rose 56.1% in August from a year ago. If you're in Wellington, which I am, house price inflation in Wellington City rose 40.5% in the year to August. Porirua, 41.0% and it now has the highest rents in the country. This is a situation that... Um, doesn't seem very rational, sustainable. But at the moment, politically rational, politically sustainable, economically rational and sustainable if inflation stays low for much longer and so do interest rates and central banks continue to have the power to print money and to do it independently from politicians or voters. And if you're thinking, oh, that can't be right, we've all been told inflation and interest rate increases are coming. Well, just remember that the world's largest economy has just reported very low uh, core inflation, in part because used car prices have dropped sharply and because airline tickets 
prices have dropped. And just to give you an idea that it's not just me saying this, there are central bankers, some current, some past, who are saying that interest rates aren't going to increase anytime soon. So yesterday, the Reserve Bank of Australia's Governor, Philip Lowe, and remember, we can't get too far out of line with what's happening in Australia. They are our first or second largest trading partner and subject to the same forces in the global economy that we are, in particular, what's happening in China. Philip Lowe came out yesterday and said he didn't expect to increase interest rates there until 2024. Now, obviously, they've got the most awful outbreaks going on in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment, and that's a factor for the economy. But secondly, the main reason he's pointing this out is that he wants to see wage inflation significantly rise before he increases interest rates. He's saying that what I really want to see is wage inflation running at more like more than 3%. Well, currently, wage inflation in Australia is 1.7% in falling. So he's saying, I'm not going to raise interest rates until 2024. Meanwhile, people here think our Reserve Bank is going to start putting up interest rates within a couple of weeks and put them up significantly, so to 2% or so within the next couple of years. That seems very unlikely when our neighbouring central bank is not going to be putting up interest rates at all for a couple of years. And that's the view of Philip Lowe, the Reserve Bank of Australia governor, obviously well respected and has the power to move interest rates in Australia. He's saying that. Also, and I think this is interesting, we've seen the former assistant governor of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, John McDermott, come out in the last day and say something quite surprising because he is seen widely as a fairly hawkish central banker. He was the head of economics for a decade up until a few years ago at the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. And for most of the last year or so, has been talking about the need to normalise interest rates and put it back to where it's supposed to be. Yesterday, he came out in a column in the National Business Review in which he said it would be foolhardy for our Reserve Bank to be putting up interest rates in lockdowns or in the immediate aftermaths of lockdowns. And he also said, you've got to look at what's happening in the rest of the world and essentially said that he didn't expect interest rates to rise anytime soon. So he's a hawkish figure and he's just turned dovish. The rest of the world doesn't see inflation as a problem. And finally, even the smartest boys and girls in the financial markets here don't see inflation as a problem. I'm not talking about the traders or the bank economists who are looking at a very short-term lens. I'm talking about actual investors and decision makers who have actual billions of dollars in clients' money that they are looking after. What do they think is happening with inflation in New Zealand? Well, again, going back to what we saw in yesterday's bond auction, where they bid $12 billion in cash for bits of paper issued by the government saying we'll pay you back in 30 years, and they were prepared to take the risk for a real return of somewhere between 0.2% and 0.8%. And they believe that inflation at best would be 2% over that 30-year period. They are not worried about inflation. Neither is the world's, effectively, the, the wisdom of the crowds in the world's financial markets. They are not worried about inflation. So where does this leave us all? with very low interest rates for quite some time, with a government-guaranteed housing market, with a central bank which has no choice really, but 
because of its mandate and its independence to keep interest rates low and potentially to start printing money again if things get a lot worse. And meanwhile, asset owners can watch house prices continue to double every decade. So how long is this going to last? I've just said it's politically and economically sustainable. Clearly, socially, it's not. We have the most expensive housing in the world. The second fastest house price inflation in the world in the last year behind Turkey. And the reason they're going so fast is because their currency collapsed. And of course, the first thing you want to do is put your money or your wealth into something that's not going to collapse. And so people have put that into property. And of course, <laughs> the Turkish Central Bank is printing money. There's no tomorrow. So we are exceptional, not for good reasons. And the reason is we don't tax wealth. We don't tax capital gains. The current government has ruled out a capital gains tax in the lifetime of the Prime Minister and ruled out a wealth tax at the last election. It's not um, spending enough to build enough houses. Uh, to be fair, it has increased the building rate, but it's not using its balance sheet in any significant way to really superpower supply to solve this problem with a supply shock. And part of the reason is, politically, it makes no sense to do it. Now, you may ask, hang on a minute, surely there's a bunch of people out there who are rich enough already and would quite like the young to have a chance to get on the ladder. And they also don't like it when their kids come to them asking for deposits and guarantees on their loans. Surely there's enough voters out there who would vote for a change in the situation so that we don't have continuing widening of inequality and the end of a hope for a secure future for a bunch of young New Zealanders. We've had this debate for the last four elections and the median voter, the ones that politicians need, have effectively said every time, we don't want a capital gains tax, we like it the way it is. And because those people vote at much higher rates than young renters, they have um, dominated that political discussion and set in concrete that those uh, policy choices around no capital gains tax, around not enough new housing supply coming onto the market, around restrictions on investment and infrastructure by central and local government, essentially with the aim of keeping taxes low or maybe even bringing in some more tax cuts in future. So the political landscape isn't changing. If you look at who's in power, Labour, and the Greens are there supporting Labour, they are apparently not wanting to change the situation. National also don't want to change the situation. They're opposed to a capital gains tax and also would remove, for example, the, the bright line change and the most recent changes to the rules that are coming. They should be coming through in October to the ability to claim interest costs as a tax, deductibility, tax deductible cost for landlords. So they're not going to change it. So where on the political landscape is any moves to change the situation. I can't see it. Where is the upswelling of anger and political activity from young renters, be it the ones whose parents own property or not? Where is that? I can't see it. They all seem to support Labour at the moment, or the Greens, or ACT, who definitely don't want a capital gains tax. I can't see uh, any political change there. In part because, obviously, as we continue to grow the amount of um, wealth in the hands of fewer and fewer people, at some point, the political balance tips. And you will see people who are renters and who want to change that situation outnumber the people who own those assets. And that's 
It's the way of democracy, right? Capitalism concentrates wealth in the hands of the few. Democracy concentrates power eventually in the hands of the many. And at some point, that balance tips and the many, say, change the rules so that we don't concentrate wealth in the hands of the few. That works, of course, uh, when everyone chooses to vote and understands the situation and votes in their own economic and political interests. That may not be the case if a bunch of very powerful interests had convinced many of those people that it's in their interests to vote for policies which are against their interests. So, for example, in America, we've seen the Republican Party manage to get a whole bunch of uh, poor uh, people in America to vote Republican, in part to because of very clever uses of culture war topics to get support, things like gun control, abortion, and the likes, uh, to get through big tax cuts and to essentially uh, concentrate more wealth in the hands of the few. In New Zealand, it takes the form of people in the centre-right saying, it's your birthright to effectively have a tax-free capital gain and everyone can do it. don't quite know how that's possible if everyone's going to be landlords and there are no renters. That's not possible. But what you're essentially saying is that the aspirational thing for a hard-working Kiwi family is to own their own home and maybe one or two rentals and we can all do that. Technically that's not possible, but that's the way that our political system has operated until now. And there's a whole bunch of magical thinking in there that somehow we can achieve affordability without house prices falling, which may have been possible 10, 20 years ago, but now is not possible in any reasonable time period. For example, if we had uh, house price inflation averaging 4% and income growth of 5% and they were straight lines for the next 100 years, that's how long it would take to get House price, affordability, house price affordability in the form of house price to income multiples and also the um, cost of renting as a share of disposable income to get that back down to where it was in 2020. So 100 years, that's a few generations. That's where we are at the moment. That was quite a long <laughs> podcast for today. I hope, you'll, I hope you'll enjoyed it. What else is happening today that you should keep an eye on if you're looking for a bit of fun? I have put, got some fun things at the bottom of today's Dawn Chorus, which you're more than welcome to look at. I have absolutely blown my time and I hope you enjoyed um, this longer podcast and please jump into the comment threads if you're a subscriber. Remember it's free to subscribe at the moment from September the 21 to September 21st so it's uh, next week. I will be charging for the um, daily emails. Thank you very much. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka.